0: Well, good morning. How are we doing today? Good. It sound, that, that sounded like you were up till 12 uh, at a game uh, and that you tried to go to sleep. I was at the game last night and, uh, man, it was amazing. And, man, one thirty in the morning, I'm still trying to get my, you know, adrenaline down so I can fall asleep a little bit. And so, uh, well, my name is George Jacobus. If you would, open up your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. <coughs> We're going to continue through the text, but uh, before we jump in, I just want to tell you it is a privilege to be here with you today. Um, I was the college pastor at Central for eight years, was a student from 98 to 2002, if there's any of you in the room, and, uh, and so I have been in this room uh, quite a bit, but this is actually my first time uh, to be in this room on a Sunday morning, and so thanks, Brian, for the trust, and the Grace team for for having me in this morning. Uh, I, I want to introduce my family a little bit. This is obviously me, and that's my wife, Lindsay. Uh, I was in the Woodlands uh, one summer when I was in school, and I remember walking into uh, this Bible study. I was the interim youth pastor at a church in the Woodlands. I remember walking into this Bible study for college students, and as soon as I walk up the stairs at this house, I see this girl from across the room and I'm like, I need to know her. I mean, like I need to to know her. This is a deep need I have now. I really need to know who she is. And so this is the first time we gathered together as college students. And so we were introducing ourselves around the room. And I remember getting to me and I said, hi, my name is George Jacobus. And I go to Texas A&M and I'm here for the summer to be interim youth pastor at First Baptist Church of the Woodlands. This, the kind of, we keep going around the circle and then it gets to Lindsay and I am very interested at this point. And so I lean forward and she says, hi, uh, my name is Lindsay Smith and, uh, and I go to the University of Texas (laughs) and I lean back in my chair and I think, you know what? This is never going to work. This is not going to work. And so sure enough, that summer we got to know her and it turns out there are great people that go to the University of Texas (laughs) in Austin. And little did I know that two years to that, almost to that day, uh, we would be standing in a church and she'd be walking down the aisle to me for us to get married. Uh, This is my family, Brooke is my oldest, she is uh, right to my left, and uh, she's 12 years old in 7th grade, and then we have twins, uh, Hallie and Hudson, they're on the end, and uh, they are 10 years old, and so we had 3 kids under 2, if you do that math right, and then uh, then we have our bonus baby, Claire, and so Claire was not on the plan, uh, but you know what, we love her, she adds so much to our family. But Lindsay and I, uh, we've been married for 15 years. Uh, We celebrated uh, 15 years this summer. Uh, We weren't available, like we didn't have it in our schedule to be able to take a trip uh, to celebrate our 15-year anniversary. And so just this past week, actually, we got on a plane, sent our kids to my sister's house, and got on a plane to get somewhere warm. And so we got on this plane, we landed in Cabo San Lucas, Mexico, and we were there for four nights before the craziness of Thanksgiving to celebrate 15 years together. And so one day we were on. A chair by the pool looking across like this blue pool water into the blue of the Pacific Ocean it was this beautiful kind of moment I'm about to doze off to go to sleep and then I hear from three chairs down from me hey does anyone know a doctor or is anyone a doctor and I sit up and I look over to my right and there is a man whose face is about as blue as a blueberry and so I stand up Little dazed because I was about to go to sleep, but I'm walking up and down this corridor next to the pool saying, hey, is anyone a doctor? Is anyone a doctor here? We need some help. I do that for about 10 seconds. And then as I get over to the guy, chest compressions have already started. And there is this lady there chest compressions are going his face is blue he's he's gurgling a, a little bit and so we thought he was choking but it turns out he wasn't And so I am standing here what is feeling like an eternity super helpless and then I'm just encouraging the person doing chest compressions I remember doing taking some CPR classes and then from across the resort this woman runs over and says I'm a nurse and I'm like, great, an expert. And so she starts doing chest compressions. And then about 30 seconds later to a minute later, another nurse walks or runs over with a doctor. She says, I'm a nurse, I'm a doctor, and they take control of the situation. You could tell this wasn't their first rodeo with someone who was blue faced. And so they're doing compressions, and this nurse says, I need you to call 911. I need you to find a medical bag. I need you to find an AED. And we all have our jobs, and we're all going. It seems like an eternity. They're doing chest compressions. The doctor is breathing for him. As the, as the gentleman is breathing out, there is this gurgling uh, that, that is going on. And I don't know what the medical term is for that, uh, but I know it's not a good thing. And what seems like an eternity, four, five, six, seven, ten minutes goes by and we're just compressing, compressing, breathing. Finally, a medical bag shows up. They start these IVs. We hear the sirens of the ambulance, chest compressions. And it is about this point that all of the resort has descended upon this little spot because they want to know what's going on. And so we're about three chairs away, Lindsay and I, and we are watching this thing and we are thinking this is not going to end well. They wheel down the gurney, they get the backboard and they ask for help. And so I stand up, run over there and this EMT is sitting there and says, okay, we're going to try to get the backboard on this man. We said, okay. So I grab the guy's leg. And we roll him over gently, get the backboard behind him, and he says, Okay, on three, we're gonna roll him back onto the board. And so they roll him back onto the board, and as they roll him back onto the board, he starts moving. During the middle of this process, the intubation they put an intubation tube down his throat to help him breathe. And so they start moving down. He starts struggling. They pull the intubation tube out. And I am here at this guy's calf. And this man sits straight up and locks eyes with me, these deep blue eyes. And he is like, what is going on? And he's like, How did, what are y'all doing around me? How did I get these IVs inside of me? And the lady that he was with, we think it was her cousin or his cousin, says, hey, they've been saving your life right now and we need to get you to the hospital. And he's like, I'm not going to the hospital. You're overreacting. And I was like, no, we're not overreacting, (laughs) buddy. You were dead. You were dead, and you now need to get to the hospital. And so he is coming to, and he's like, what are y'all doing around me? I promise, this was a big deal right here. And so the EMT says, hey, let's just get him on the gurney. Don't give him a choice. So we picked him up, put him on the gurney, and wheeled him out. Now, as everyone is, as he is getting wheeled out, he gets out of view, and everyone around just starts clapping. We start clapping for the nurses, clapping for the doctor, clapping for the EMTs, clapping that our vacation doesn't have the biggest party foul ever watching a guy pass away on a chair in front of us. But what was interesting in that moment is joy started coming out. Everyone started celebrating. And I am was by a pool, so I don't have a shirt on. But I'm hugging other people, other men that don't have shirts on. And I'm (laughs) shaking hands for other people. I'm doing all these things. And the reason I'm doing that is because our eyes had seen a man who was dead and he came back to life. Like my eyes saw someone who we thought it wasn't going to end well. And there were these people and we celebrated. It was full of joy because our eyes saw something miraculous. Now, in Philippians chapter 4 today, we're going to see lots of commands that Paul gives the church in Philippi. But, Every time he gives a command, it's really interesting, he says and references the Lord. He references these commands and then says, hey, but we do this because of the Lord, because there was a dead man who was in the grave, who raised from the dead and now gives us life. And so all these commands are in response to us being a part of a miracle. So let's look at this. Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 4. It says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Now, when I was in college, I remember if there was a professor that repeated something multiple times, you knew that it was going to show up again somewhere, right? And so we see in this verse right here that there are two words, or there's one word that's repeated twice in a span of just a few words. It says, rejoice in the Lord always. And he says, and just in case you didn't get the first time, let me tell you, rejoice. Now that word in the Greek, rejoice means to feel joy or delight. Now, now how often are we to feel that joy or delight? What does it say? Rejoice in the Lord always. That always in the Greek means always, all the time. It means that this rejoicing should be a continuing ethic in your life. But, but what's the subject of that rejoicing? Rejoice in the Lord. Like, like that there is this intrinsic joy like rooted deep down into our soul, that there is this this life, there is this this perspective that we have that only comes from the Lord, that comes from a man who was sitting at the right hand of the throne of God, who didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but rather he came, lived a perfect life, died on the cross for our behalf, was put in a grave, rose again, and then gave us hope and gave us life. And so the subject of our rejoicing, the subject of our joy, is the fact that we now have life and hope in Jesus Christ. Now, does that mean that we can't find joy in anything else? No. No. Like, I can often find joy with my family for short periods of time. (laughs) But there are often times in my family, extended family, my kids bring me joy does that mean i can't be joyful in material things no no there are times that material things bring joy does that mean i can't find joy in accomplishment no yes you can find joy in accomplishment does that mean that i can't find any joy in my health no yes you can find joy in your health Does that mean that I can't find joy in a seven-overtime game versus LSU? Yes, I can find joy in that. But I also know that a bowl game is coming that might not go that way. So, it's not saying that we can't find joy in other things, but rather what it's saying is that if we want to find joy that sustains, joy that lasts, joy that never ends, then we've got to put our joy and find our source of joy inside something that never ends. And the only thing that never ends is God and His Word, it's the only thing that never ends. And so if that's the source of our joy, how do we get that type of joy? How do we find that type of rejoicing? Well, well, Matthew 5 is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. You don't have to turn there. Just stay in Philippians. But Matthew chapter 5... Jesus starts the, the Sermon on the Mount. It's the longest sermon in all of the Bible. And this is what he says at the very beginning, the first beatitude, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. It says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, now that word blessed actually means uh, happy. And it's not a mundane happiness. It's not a happiness that's dependent on outside circumstances. It's not the the happiness that's found in the size of the house you have or the number of followers you have on social media or what type of car you have or your outward circumstances. That word happy actually means a happiness or a joy that is not derived on anything outwardly focused. So he says... Happy are the poor in spirit. Happy are the poor in spirit. That word poor. There are two words that in the New Testament that, that are used to define the word poor or define poor. The first word is I'm poor but I'm not a beggar. It's the same word that was used for the widow who threw the two coins into the offering plate. Like She was poor, but that just meant she didn't have anything extra at the end of the month or at the end of the time. Her paycheck was finished until her next paycheck came. So I'm poor, but I'm not a beggar. The second word in the New Testament Greek for poor is described like this. I'm poor, And I'm dependent upon other people just to sustain my life. Now, which word for poor do you think is used here in Matthew chapter 5? It's the second one. So it says, blessed are those who understand that they need help. Blessed are those that understand. People who understand, happy are those who understand that their course of life was going in a completely opposite direction than what they wanted. And then God came in outside of their circumstances and rescued them. And listen to what it says here. Blessed are the poor in spirit, For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who are humble enough to understand that God is doing something in their life are the ones who will find rejoice and joy in the Lord always. Now, that's the first. The second one, the second command. It says, let your reasonableness be made known to everyone. That word reasonableness, it it means this, that we should be yielding, mild. It implies a a giving up of a right for another. So, So in other words, in order for us to be reasonable, we have to be known as someone who is for other people. We have to be known as someone who listens, who sees more others as more important than ourselves, who doesn't allow our dreams, our hopes, our desires, our preferences to rule the day. But notice what happens right after this. Like, look at this. He says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. But then what does it say? The Lord is at hand. He says, hey... I want you to rejoice always. I want you to be reasonable because the Lord is at hand. He says, hey, do you want to see an example of someone who was reasonable? Then look at Jesus. Look at the guy who gave up everything for you. Look at the guy who who took your situation, who saw what was going on, who saw your rebellion. And instead of turning his back on you, instead engaged and pressed in to bring reconciliation. He says, and we should do the same thing. We should do the same thing. Some of my most favorite moments as a parent have been when I see my kids be reasonable with each other. It happens sometimes. (laughs) And it's so funny to see the response of one child after the other child has given up their preferences for them. Our house could be can be very chaotic. And our house can be full of preferences that, that lead very much to kids having their own way. But when a child will give up a, an Xbox control or will let the other person shoot the basketball, it actually changes the entire culture of where we are, of our home. And so what God has called us to is for you to go into your context, for me to go into my context and view other people as more important than us, that our reasonableness would be made known so that we can be culture makers, culture influencers inside of our context. So that when others look at us, they will see a picture of Jesus giving up his preferences for us. That's what God has called us to. But here's the third command. Here's the third command. And we're going to camp out here for a little bit. It says, do not be anxious about anything. How about that for a statement? Hey, I want you to rejoice. I want you to be reasonable. And I want you to be anxious about nothing. Nothing. I mean, I see your faces right now and and I see the smirks and I'm like, okay, yeah, yeah. That's like this blanket statement and food for the whole world. No, he says, hey, be anxious about nothing. That word anxious means that we would find discomfort, trouble, worry, and so he says, "Don't find discomfort in anything. Worry, and don't let anything take over you to the point where your eyes are taken off of the Lord." Now, we're going to camp out here because because we are living in a day in our country where, where anxiety has become an epidemic. If you just Google anxiety in the United States, you will see article after article, study after study that has been done, that has been written uh, on this topic of anxiety. In August of this year, Barnes & Noble, the largest retailer of books in the country, came out with a statistic that said from June 2017 to June of 2018... Books sold on the topic of anxiety raised 25% from the year before. 25%. There's another study that said anxiety disorders are the most common of mental illnesses in the United States, affecting around 40 million adults. One in five struggle with anxiety. One in five. Another study involving around 147,000 people from 26 countries concluded this, that anxiety actually goes up the more you increase your socioeconomic status. Like you would think that, that the more income you get, the more financial health you receive, then anxiety would actually go down. But no, it actually goes up more than 300% inside countries that have a higher socioeconomic status. Anxiety. The American Psychiatric Association ran a poll of US residents in 2017, and they found that nearly two thirds of them were extremely or somewhat anxious about health and safety for themselves and their families. And more than a third said they were more anxious overall than the year before. This study also noted uh, that millennials seem to have a little bit of a bent towards anxiety, that they are the most worrisome generation, the most anxious generation. From 2016 to 2017, there was a 36% jump in anxiety. And here are the five areas, the five areas that people said, this is where I find my most anxiety. It's in health, in safety, in finances, in politics, and in relationships. That was found on CNN. I don't know if it was fake news or not, but it was on CNN. But here's what I find fascinating. 67% said they worry about finances, yet the stock market is at a historic high. Unemployment is down. Wages are up a little. Yet at the same time, we think, you know what, if I just had 10% more, everything would be okay. So when you look at Philippians chapter 4, and you see this, you see Paul writing to the church and saying, hey, be anxious about nothing. It's hard for us even to wrap our mind around the idea that we, that, that is even a possibility. Yet anxiety, because anxiety runs and, and debilitates us. So, so what's the response? Like what's the thing that we're supposed to do in the middle of that anxiety, in feeling that anxiety? Here's what it says. It says, do not be anxious about anything, but rather in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So the first thing he says is be anxious about nothing or do not let anxiety rule your heart, but rather in everything, in every facet of life, in the things that make you the most anxious. He says, pray and make supplication to the Lord. Now, I know what you're thinking here, potentially. Hey, we're in church and he's talking about prayer. I'll turn the mind off because I'll wait for his next point. I've heard about prayer enough. But you know what? Here's what I found. I found that a lot of people talk a really good game about prayer, yet in practicality, very few people actually consider their life full of vibrancy and full of excitement. I found that very few of us will actually look, if we're honest, and say, you know what? I feel like my prayer life is where it needs to be. But if we're honest with ourselves, it's probably been a long time since we redirected our anxiety instead of letting it dwell in our mind and ultimately go into our soul, into our heart. It's been a long time since we've redirected that anxiety to the Lord. It's been a long time since we've actually prayed about the things that we're anxious about. Instead, what we normally do is we run to two things. We either run to worry or we run to someone else. Yet Paul says, hey, in the middle of this anxiety, in the middle of the persecution church that you're about to feel, I don't want you to be anxious, but I want you to redirect all that energy, redirect all of that perspective, all of that angst that you're feeling, and I want you to run to the Lord in prayer and supplication because you know what? He's going to hear you. You see, oftentimes prayer gets we struggle in prayer because we don't actually believe that God is going to hear us. But we have a God that the psalmist says is intimately acquainted with our ways. That he's not surprised at what's going on with you right now. And he says, take all that worry, take all that angst, and you redirect that to him. But he says, he has a unique qualifier here. But in everything by prayer, In supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So it's prayers, it's supplication, but it's the heart behind thanksgiving that we do that. Thanksgiving is going to be the thing that drives us to go to the Lord. Now, these two words, let your, are are uniquely um, written in the Greek in this. You see, all these other commands have been in the imperative tense in Greek, the present active imperative tense in the Greek. But this let your actually switches the voice. Instead of it being active and present, it's actually an aorist term, which means it's in the past. Okay, so, so, so let's put this together, what that means. It's our thanksgiving, we let our request from the past of God's faithfulness to us, drives us, listen, drives us to be thankful to the Lord, knowing and believing that in the past he was faithful, and in the present, in the future, he's going to be faithful again. And it's the thanksgiving that drives us to walk deeper, To walk closer. And to actually pray to him. Because he's been faithful before and he'll be faithful again. Now listen to the result when we do this. Here's what it says. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understandings, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and listen, and the God of peace will be with you. You. So we see two times again this idea of peace being inside of our soul in the middle of our anxiety. Doesn't that sound like a great place to be? I mean, I, I know it's 1020, but doesn't that sound like a great place to be? Yeah. <laughs> like 67% of us have worried about health, safety, finances, fill in the blank. Wouldn't it be really nice if in the middle of that, not changing circumstances, but in the middle of that, there is this peace that comes from God that transcends all understandings and knowing that God himself is going to guard our hearts and our minds? Doesn't that sound amazing? It sounds amazing to me. It sounds like I need to have a party. Like it was a party at Kyle Field last night, but I need to have a party right here because I know that God is going to protect me in the middle of those things if I have prayer and supplications with thanksgiving that is based on Him, not on me. Now, when I was first starting in seminary, um, they, they make you take a class which is um, Introduction to Spirituality is what they called it at Southwestern. In my mind, I'm thinking Introduction to Spirituality. I'm at seminary. Um, I've walked with the Lord for a, a long time. Uh, this doesn't sound like the best class to me. It's a one-hour class. just felt like you needed another $350 of my tuition money uh, to pay some bills. And so we go to this introduction to spirituality class and they teach you about spending time with the Lord and and prayer and all these things. But one project that they had you do, they had me do, was what they called a post-it note timeline. And my professor, he said, hey guys, I want you to get away for for half a day and I want you to work on this timeline. I'm like, I'm working full-time at a church in Colorado. How exactly am I going to get away for half a day to do this? So I reworked my schedule. I got away. And what I brought with me was a a white poster board and a stack of post-it notes. So the first thing you had to do was you had to draw a, a line across that poster board and you drew an arrow on it at the end signifying future. And I put my birth date, 1980, right at the beginning of the millennials. So you know my bent towards anxiety. 1980. And this... Exercise started asking me all these questions. Hey, tell me about your parents. Were they Christian? How did they come to know the Lord? If they were, and then it said, "Okay, so so tell us about uh, what was going on uh, economically in 1980. Tell us what was happening um, with the gas prices. Tell us uh, a, a a unique experience that you had. Tell us tell uh, write down about the time you had the most fear and what happened." Tell us about uh, a meaningful relationship that you had in middle school. Um, Write down a a significant event in your life that as you look at it um, just was not part of your plan. And so it had me write down all these things on the post-it note and then put it on the calendar or on the timeline of when that thing happened. And I get to the very end. Finish the last question, stick the last post it note on there, and now it said, okay, now look at the whole timeline. So I look at the whole timeline, and I started reading it in chronological order. And as I started reading it, I began to see the faithfulness of God throughout my entire life. My parents didn't grow up in a Christian home. They came to know the Lord because there was a chaplain in the army that was faithful to share the gospel with my dad. My dad went home and led my mom to the Lord. A a northeastern Connecticut man with a woman from the island of Crete who met in Germany at an ice skating rink. Didn't know the Lord at all. Chaplain in the army did that. I grew up in a Christian home because of that man. Then I looked back and I was like, at seventh grade, I was going to be starting quarterback. I wasn't the best quarterback, but the best quarterback got hurt. So I was starting quarterback. And then my grades came out. The coach called all the, gr- all, all the people who said that they needed to... Uh, they weren't allowed to play anymore because their grades. My name wasn't called. My report card was mailed home to my mom and dad. They still did that back in the day. They mailed home your report card. They got it. They saw a D on it. D does not mean play in middle school. They come up to the school, tell the principal, I get called in the day of the game. And they said, you're not playing. My sophomore year in high school... I learned my lesson to take care of my grades. But because I learned that lesson, uh, three quarters of my JV football team, my sophomore year in high school, failed. I started playing quarterback, middle linebacker, deep snapper, and was on every special teams player. It was on every special teams. Because we only had 14 people. (laughs) But you know what's fascinating? Is that my mom would tell me that that sophomore year was a time that my personality changed. That I was an introvert before. And God brought in some confidence being on the field that much. But why was I on that field? Because in seventh grade, I learned that I needed to pass in order to play. Then in college, uh, my parents came to me. It was my junior year. And they came to me and they said, Hey, George, like the, the company that we own is just not going uh, very well. And so uh, we think that you need to find a job this summer. Like the only problem with that is it was the end of April. Like all the internships for college students were taken. All the things that, all the planning that it takes to, to land one of those things was, was done. And so I was, I walked away from that moment a little frustrated, a little angry. Uh, and, and if I'm being really honest with you, I drove home that night back to my place here in College Station off of Spring Loop and, and God and I had a little had it out a little bit. There was no Thanksgiving in my voice at that time. He knew how I felt. The next two days later, I'm at the BSM. And Bob Mayfield, the director at the time, said, Hey, if anyone's looking for an internship this this summer. Um, There's a church in the woodlands that's looking for an interim youth pastor. So I go to the woodlands. I meet my wife. And not only that, as I looked at this timeline, everything that God had done in, in my life was dependent upon that one conversation in an ice cream place right off of Texas, when my parents' company wasn't doing very well and me going to the woodlands, I can trace back everywhere I've been from that one moment. And so I saw this whole timeline and I just looked at this and I began to cry because I, was, I realized that God is faithful. Now, was it always easy? No. No. No, it wasn't always easy. But it was in the uneasy times that God was putting things inside of me so that in the other times, He was instilling inside of me traits, characteristics, giving me skills that would be played out in my future at some point. Now in the middle of that, it is not the best spot to be in. But when you take the camera and you zoom back a little bit, you see this pattern of faithfulness, And when you see the pattern of, thank, of faithfulness, it wells up inside of you thankfulness. And when that thankfulness comes inside of you, it wells up inside of you a belief that God has a plan and he's writing a story with your life. And that story is better than any story that you could write on your own. And so why am I sitting here being anxious when I can direct my anxiety through prayer and supplication to the story maker? And so here's the question for us today. Number one, when was the last time you experienced Jesus? Well, like when was the last time you sat down with him and, and you heard the voice of the Lord in your life? You heard a dead man that came to life. When was the last time you experienced that? That you opened up the word of God and say, God, I just need to hear from you today. Because without hearing from him, we will never rejoice. We will never be reasonable. And we will never have anxiety that leads to prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. So that's the first question. When was the last time you heard the voice of the Lord in your life? The second thing. When was the last time you really thought about the faithfulness that God has brought to you? When was the last time you took a survey of your life and and, and you began to look and you began to to evaluate all the great things and then evaluate all all the times that weren't the best, the dark years, and tracked God's faithfulness in the middle of it? Some of you might be in the dark years right now. The the, the best thing you can do is track God's faithfulness through your whole life. We serve a God that wants to know us, wants to speak with us, wants to commune with us. And we serve a God who is faithful. So, what have we to fear? And we're leaning on the everlasting arms of Jesus. My prayer and our hope is that we would be people that know the Lord. And that dwell with thanksgiving with him. Pray with me. God. We love you and we're thankful for your word. Thankful for what it means to us. Thankful for how it. Guides us and directs us. And God I know that. That in this room, there, there might be a tendency inside of us to really speak a good game. and but, but in practicality, there's really things inside of us that aren't right. God, I pray that we would run to you and not run to anything else. And God, secondly, I pray that you would remind us today in a season when we pause and give thanks, that we wouldn't just look and be thankful for the outward things that you've given us, but rather we would be thankful for the historical faithfulness you've done and exhibited to us in every facet of our life. And so God, will you bring hope? God, will you bring thanksgiving to us? And God, may we leave this place not anxious about anything, because we serve a God who's been faithful forever. So, God, we love you, we trust you, and we pray that you do only what you can do. We praise Your Son's name, Amen. Hey, thank you so much for being here today. If I could just just remind us for one thing, uh, you know on. On the 27th, on Tuesday, Brian's going to go and go into surgery. If you would just put a calendar reminder on your phone, like whenever you get up to pray for him, Tristy, and the Fisher family, pray for the doctors, pray that you give them wisdom and direction, that God would really be with their hands and their mind as they perform surgery on Brian. Uh, If you could do that for me, that would be, and the Fisher family, that would be amazing. All right, thank you so much for being here. You're dismissed.